At the end of our first episode, we noticed a strange turn that occurs at the end of Henry V. The chorus, which has been speaking in celebratory tones throughout the play, introduces a jarring new note in the last six lines. Henry VI, in infant bands crowned king, lost France and made his England bleed. After an entire play devoted to showing the work of conquering France and ostensibly celebrating that achievement, we learn in a single line that all this work was for nothing. It might seem strange that Shakespeare would change course so abruptly at the end of his story, unless we remember that this isn't Shakespeare's story and this isn't really the end. Henry V's campaign in France is just one chapter in the ongoing processes of history, and history shapes the structure of Shakespeare's play and the challenges faced by its protagonist. We address these issues with Stephen Foley, Associate Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Brown University. You think about the title of Shakespeare's English history plays, which is the name of the king. The title foregrounds the premise of the plays, which is the uncertainty of succession, the uncertainty of sustaining power. So just reading the titles of the plays in order, Henry IV, Henry V, Henry VI, is to rehearse a, a litany of royal failure. Power can never be sustained. So I, I think that the question that we need to bring to, to bear here is, is, is really to understand the importance of the problems of succession. How does one king succeed another? By inheritance, by just inheritance, by cheating, by murder, by war, by treachery. It's important to understand the, the political importance of succession as a form. In a sense, Henry V succeeded to the throne in the most traditional, legitimate way. He was the eldest son of the last king, Henry IV, and he inherited the throne when his father died. But his father didn't attain the throne by inheritance. It was by something closer to treachery and murder. In, in the background of the, the Henry plays is always the forced deposition of Richard II by Henry's father. He acquired the crown by taking advantage of Richard's lack of skills as a politician. So uh, Henry Bolingbroke was able to manipulate the factions within the court and really force Richard's abdication. What exactly happens to cause Richard's death is more ambiguous, but the, the speech of penitence that I just referred to it, it, it makes it clear that in Henry's mind, there is a great deal of guilt attached to his father. The night before Agincourt, Henry prays, O oh God of battles, steal my soldiers' hearts, possess them not with fear, not today, O oh Lord, oh, not today. Think not upon the fault my father made encompassing the crown. Henry fears that he may be punished for what his father did years ago and that this punishment may also fall upon the men he has led into battle. Ultimately, Henry wins his war, but he might never have gone to war if his father's fault hadn't made it so urgent that he prove himself a true king through conquest. Shakespeare's account of history recognises that a person's choices in the present are always shaped and constrained by the past. 
I think, like all of the history plays, it focuses on problems of agency and historical determination, the limits of individual responsibility when one doesn't control all of the forces um, around one's action. So in, in particular, because this focuses on leadership and obedience in a time of war, I, I think there's a particularly tight focus on the tragic limits of freedom. But I think the, the play is asking what are the limits of the individual and the state in light of the givens, the facts of, of history. The limits imposed by history are made even clearer when we see this play as one of a series. Shakespeare wrote two four-part series of history plays called Tetralogies. The first tetralogy, written in the early 1590s, dramatises the Wars of the Roses in the reigns of King Henry VI and Richard III. Shakespeare wrote a second tetralogy in the late 1590s, telling the stories of Richard II, Richard's deposition by Henry IV, the civil wars waged against Henry IV by his former supporters, and then the story of Henry V. Henry V inherits the tensions and conflicts of those earlier regimes, and that's partly why he manifests such a conflicted character of his own. Each of the tetralogies ends with a deeply enigmatic king. Each of the two sequences ends with the audience leaving the theatre of history, recognising what has happened, but also recognising that you'll never fully understand the motives and the many forces that determine the outcome. The two tetralogies leave us with a sense of mystery. The performance history of Henry V has proved what a mystery this figure really is. In productions over the last four centuries, the role of Henry has been played in many different ways. As an ideal king, a larger-than-life national hero, a power-hungry thug, a weary, ageing, paranoid politician, a ruthless but sympathetically human military leader a sincerely religious, idealistic man wrestling with his own self-doubt, a cold, cruel and calculating Machiavellian who is always performing a role, a troubled, thoughtful youth maturing from the wild Prince Hal into the responsible King Henry. All of these interpretations emerge out of different elements within Shakespeare's text. So each time a director or performer or audience member comes to this play, they are faced with the question, who is Henry V? So the uncertain centre of this play is Henry, who remains, I think, an enigma. He appears at one moment to be full of life and moral energy, whether he's leading the troops or privately meditating on the conscience of, of a king. And at the next moment, he may seem to be cold or a mere shell of a man who's mouthing implausible or, or inconsistent certainties, a pure performer for better or for, for worse. The whole sequence of actions in the play is carefully orchestrated to display Henry's skill as a monarch, but also to suggest that he must be operating with a certain coldness, a certain necessary coldness that may give us the impression that he is a mere Machiavelli. 
From the very first scenes, we're presented with radically different ways of interpreting Henry's character. And these scenes are especially important because everything Henry does later during the war in France will be coloured by our view of the war itself. The first scenes foreground the question of whether the war is justified, and they make it very difficult to know the answer. I'm thinking of the language that Henry asked Canterbury to, to tell us why the law Salic, which they have in France, or should or should not bar us in our claim. And I, I'm interested in the precision of, of the oppositional rhetoric, or should or should not, because to me, it indicates that Henry has very logically gone through the processes of reasoning and reached his own conclusion and is now inviting Canterbury to fill in the, 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 the blanks for him. So we see him both as a, a wise prince contemplating war, but we also see him staging a kind of proof that he doesn't want to deliver on his own, passing the responsibility on to others. It's possible to see Henry both as earnestly contemplating the morality of war, or you can see him at the same time as staging this all for the benefit of a decision that's been made beforehand. And I, I, to me, it's important to be able to see it through both lenses. And, and again, this goes to what I call the uncertainty principle in this play. We're never going to know whether we are being had or we're being persuaded. And, and that's, that's the tragic uncertainty that this play invites us to, to live with. So it, it's a test of, of our judgment and the limits of our judgment. I think we never get to know Henry with certainty. And that's something that we as participants in history have to accept. But I think the play insists upon seeing Henry's strength as a leader following from the necessities of his situation and not to see his, his coldness or his manipulativeness merely as a product of some character flaw, but as a product of the structure in which he's operating. I, I like to get away from that either-or view of Henry towards seeing as Henry who operates within the, the necessary constraints of, of what it means to be, to be a king. I think that the play teaches us to admire Henry, but it never allows us to like him. The irony is that part of Henry's strength as a leader lies in how he gets his men to like him, in part by persuading them that he is like them. Before the assaults at Harfleur and Agincourt, he delivers rousing speeches based on the theme of brotherhood. Their common cause, their fighting side by side, Henry claims, will unite them as one group and one family. He begins his rallying cry at Harfleur by addressing his soldiers as an intimate, unified band. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. He proclaims they all have noble lustre in their eyes, apparently dissolving class distinctions of noblemen and commoner. Before Agincourt, the chorus relates how Henry visits all his men and lifts their spirits, calling them brothers, friends and countrymen. Just before the battle, he famously addresses his men as a band of brothers. In many ways, Henry's rhetoric seems successful at winning his followers' hearts. Pistol declares, 
The king's a heart of gold, a lad of life. I kiss his dirty shoe, and from heartstring, I love the lovely bully. The Welsh captain Fluellen tells Henry in familiar tones, I am your majesty's countryman. I care not to know it. I will confess it to all the world. But other moments remind us that Henry's rhetorical strategy is based on unreliable premises. In order to create unity among his troops, Henry tries to flatten the hierarchy of power that separates them. I think what makes us suspicious of his rhetoric is that we see the falseness of his trying to efface hierarchy and power with the claims of of natural kinship. We see that he's in some ways deceiving his men in making them think that king and commoner fight the same battle when they don't. I don't think we stop to think about that because we're so swept away by sentimental summons to togetherness. But as we step away from the speech in the echo, I think we begin to to question some of the premises which we had just accepted so readily. Henry's unifying rhetoric of brotherhood is particularly undercut by the issue of ransom. Henry objects strongly whenever the French herald comes to ask for ransom, and he almost comes to blows with the soldier Williams when the latter suggests the king might be ransomed. The issue likely makes Henry so angry because the option for ransom insistently contradicts his inspiring claims about brotherhood and unity. Henry's rhetoric attempts to dissolve or make invisible the divisions of hierarchy and rank, but ransom makes all those divisions starkly visible again. When he meets real resistance from Williams about the differences between a king and a common person, it, it centres upon the question of ransom. If the English were to negotiate a peace treaty with the French and had been defeated, they could have used those negotiations to buy back their nobles as part of the terms of the peace treaty. The king, he's asserting that the, that the king would never allow himself to, re, to be ransomed. And Williams really takes objection to this because he says, well, a king can just say this And then when everybody else is dead, he can get ransomed. Yes, I mean, he does refuse (laughs) ransom. And I think we can see him as genuinely sharing a a bond of blood with his band of brothers. But Williams is an astute political scientist here. And he reminds us that that kind of sentimental reasoning really obscures the facts, which is that the king always can buy himself out. He always comes out on top no matter what. That hierarchy cannot be erased. And Henry simply won't live with this. And the quarrel comes to a head with the exchange of gloves. They agree to continue the quarrel at another time. And and indeed they do. It shows that Henry is unwilling to let go of of his will to control the behavior of his subjects. And to me, that's him at his most manipulative in a petty way. This encounter with Williams and his companions is a kind of personal crisis for Henry. When these men speculate that the king might surrender himself for ransom and say they wish he were here in France alone, Henry is forced to recognise that not all his men worship him as a brave, heroic king. 
Henry would like to be an inspiring leader beloved by the common people, someone for whom they gladly fight. Methinks I could not die anywhere so contented as in the king's company, the disguised Henry says, inviting the other soldiers to say the same, but they don't. Not every soldier has been so won over by his words that they are happy to die for him in battle. His quest to show his sail of greatness and legitimate his crown has a high price for his subjects and it's not one that they all pay willingly. This is a painful truth for Henry to confront. The battle presents another kind of crisis, the tragic facts of war and death which Henry's heroic rhetoric often glossed over become all too real at Agincourt. Until now, Henry has ordered his men to use mercy towards the French. But when the French rally their troops, Henry must choose between showing mercy towards the French prisoners and successfully repelling the attack. The turning point in um, the Battle of Agincourt, when Henry recognises that the French are about to begin a new assault, he instantly orders the murder of the prisoners the murder of the prisoners, I think that is in some ways the, the moral crisis of, of the play. For me, this is the peak of the tragic arc of the play. When, when we in the audience recognize that the death of, of battle is inevitable. Once you resolve to go to war, that is the fact that you have to accept that you will kill and be killed. So the tragic uh, arc of this play doesn't belong to Henry's tragic recognition of his circumstances, but to the shared recognition that we have in the audience that once a monarch and people go to war, that this kind of suffering is inevitable. In its final act, the play asks if it is possible to find a kind of redemption after suffering and to escape the tragic arc of war. It looks for that redemption by attempting to transition from the genre of tragedy to romantic comedy. Henry's last scene shows him proposing marriage. The killing of the prisoners really punctuates our understanding of the heroic rhetoric of the Crispin's Day speech. And it reminds us of the facts of war. And then war concluded, Henry having attempted to expiate his sins, to negotiate the peace, just as that arc of tragic loss is, is coalescing around a notion of returning to the peace, the play changes the subject to marriage. The last act of the play is a complete shift in tone and genre to a romantic courtship. And it kind of wrests the marriage from being part of the diplomatic treaty that Henry's negotiating with Charles into almost another zone of the theatre, into a romance. During the peace talks, the Duke of Burgundy delivers a moving speech asking why the naked, poor and mangled peace may not return to France, whose once fertile fields lie corrupting. Henry replies that peace will return if the French king agrees to his demands, including his demand to marry Princess Catherine. Because the next scene shows Henry wooing Catherine and perhaps winning her over, the play suggests that the peace will indeed return and the ravages of war will be healed. As man and wife being two are one in love, 
says the French Queen, so too England and France may unite in Christian-like accord. But this happy ending seems a little shakier if we remember that Catherine likely accepts Henry as much out of necessity as of love. This was why she asked to learn English in the scene just after Henry's forces conquered Harfleur, because she knew that she might be obliged to marry Henry. I think the language lesson between Catherine and Alice is one of the most fascinating scenes in Shakespeare. Is Catherine enjoying a certain agency here and thinking that she can conquer the English conqueror? Or is she being victimized by her subject position as an available woman? The question of whether or not Henry's gruff courtship of Catherine represents yet another rapacious conquest or a king having fun and wooing a saucy young bride. That's, that's an ambiguity that really is unresolved in the play. And it's a fault line in the play that I don't think anybody has really fully unpacked because it's the most severe collision of tragic understanding and comedic forgiveness. In a comedy, the marriage that closes the action is supposed to be a means of reconciling the differences that had prevented the marriage from taking place smoothly in the first place. But in this play, the joining of Catherine and Henry doesn't do anything to increase our understanding of what happens in war or our forgiveness of it. It simply provides a distraction. It's almost like changing the subject, which returns in the epilogue with the sad recognition that things took a turn for the worse. So you go from a moment of sort of comic celebration of the marriage and pleasure and joyous sexuality, you go from that to the dead fact of utter loss. And the, the feelings and the genres, they don't gel. They're, they're left suspended. So the play celebrates Harry, England, and, and St. George, monarch and nation, in triumph. Um, and it does so very well, especially in the rousing rhetoric of the battle speeches that Henry um, produces. But it also puts us behind the scenes and inside um, the mind and the feelings of the army and the doubts that accompany resolve and the coincidence of loyalty and betrayal, obedience and resistance. All this action swirls around the uncertain center of Henry's character, at once calculating and charming, reflective and superficial, caring and cold. The contradictory of nature of king and nation are also signaled in the arcs of comedy and tragedy that traverse the action. The triumphant victory at Agincourt brings with it a recognition of war as tragic necessity, and the arbitrary shift from war to wooing represents a comic drive towards marriage and the promise of conflict resolve. But is it? Our final images of Henry are in the role of the gruff soldier trying to win the daughter of a former enemy, and then the play folds into its sorry epilogue, looking forward to the failure of Henry's heroic conquests to sustain themselves in an English empire in France. In the next episode, we'll examine more of the play's contradictions and ambiguities and see how they emerge even at the play's most apparently confident and heroic moments. 
the chorus's bracing opening speech, and Henry's rousing oration on St Crispin's Day. We'll also hear how Henry has been shaped by his own history in his soliloquy before Agincourt. 